0: We're really excited to basically give data scientists the ability to take their ideas, create a beautiful interactive version of it for their companies or for the world, and then in a single click
1: deploy that.
2: Even as founders, you often plan for failure more than you plan for success.
1: We have people who are amazing engineers reaching out to us saying, I wanna work on that. Uh, I've been using it, it's amazing, I wanna do it.
2: What's more important, right, is that we keep continually growing. And and most of our growth is through word of mouth and is through our community.
3: From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm really excited to have the three co-founders of Streamlit. With me here today, Adrian Troy, Amanda Kelly, and Tiago Teixeira here on Founder Real Talk. Streamlit is an open source app framework and the easiest way for data scientists and machine learning engineers to create beautiful performant apps quickly and easily. Streamlit's an open source product that has become extremely popular with data science teams and has grown to over 10,000 GitHub stars since its launch in late 2019. GGV is excited to have co-led Streamlit Series A financing in April of this year, and it's been a real fantastic pleasure to work with Adrian, Amanda, and Tiago ever since. So we've typically focused on guests uh, for Founder Real Talk from companies that are in the growth stages, but we've gotten a lot of requests from listeners to highlight some early stage founders as well to focus on challenges and opportunities that founders face in the early stage. And so this episode with Streamlit is part of our early stage series. Despite Streamlit being early in their journey, I'm really excited to dig in with these three. As you're going to see, they're very experienced. They've worked uh, with each other in the past at Google X. They're also very prepared. So without further ado, Adrian, Amanda, Tiago, welcome to Founder Real Talk.
0: Great to be here, Glenn. We're so excited.
3: Awesome. So Adrian, let's start with you. You were on the faculty at Carnegie Mellon in the computer science department, before your stints at Google X, and most recently at Zoox, the autonomous vehicle company recently acquired by Amazon. You've obviously had an incredible career and you could have pursued roles at at pretty much any tech company you would have wanted to, but you decided to found Streamlit. Curious like how the idea for Streamlit came about and what pushed you over the edge to decide to take the plunge and, and do a startup?
0: The problem with having that career is that I kept managing people, (laughs) and what I really wanted to do was write code, which was really an an addiction of mine and a passion. So uh, I took some time off, and I started writing some code. Of course, this plan didn't work out at all, because now I'm running Streamlit, and all I do is manage people. That's what I was going to say. Like
3: (laughs) CEO of a startup doesn't sound like a recipe for not managing people. I know, I know. I,
0: I keep foiling myself. But actually, you know, we do write a bunch of code and we have hackathons and even Amanda, who, my co-founder, who's our, you know, NBA business person, she always sneaks off and writes code as well. So we are truly a company of coders. But what happened was, yeah, I wanted to write some code. And so I uh, started just working on some cool stuff. And my friend Lucas Bywald invited me into an Airbnb in the woods and was like, Adrian, let's just coat our heads off for like three days straight. And uh, we were creating neural nets together and writing everything from scratch and backprop backpropagation for p- perceptrons. And um, in a way, I think we might say hopefully two iconic companies came out of that because he's now the CEO founder of Weights and Biases. And I started creating Streamlit very much out of what happened that weekend. And Streamlit sort of emerged naturally. It was something that I wanted. I wanted to be able to play with the models that I was creating. I wanted to be able to interact with them and share them with others. And there just wasn't another way to do it. So I did it myself. And lo and behold, it started to snowball. Other people wanted to use it. And notably, my best friend, Tiago, wanted to help me build it.
3: That's really cool. Well, let's move on to Tiago. I'm curious, like what convinced you to get involved? Sounds like you and Adrian were really good friends, but there's still a, a big uh, hurdle to say, yeah, I'll help you co-found the startup. What was your thought process like and how'd you get over the edge?
1: Well, it was actually very, in a way, very sudden, <laughs> but in another way also took a little time. So the way that was sudden is um, I was, we li- used to live in the same neighborhood. I used to bump into Adrian every now and then. And this one time, you were in the same Airbnb woods, wooded <laughs> area. Neighborhood, or
3: is this, this another no, I neighborhood? wasn't
1: called for that. Like, I wasn't invited. Oh, okay. Yeah, we should do that and actually get uh, a Lucas as well. <laughs> oh my God,
0: I would love that. Anyone who wants to go into the woods and just write code with me
1: is invited.
0: <laughs> Sounds like we have to have a board meeting in the woods.
3: Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, All yeah, right. So yeah, one of these days he was biking around with his son and I saw him on the street and he was like, you got to come over and check out this thing I'm making. I think it was probably two weeks into the, the beginning of Streamlit when he brought me in. And I was immediately really excited about it. I was like, wow, like, what can I do to help? Like, Can I code nights and weekends? <laughs> Which is what I did. So I immediately was excited about it and wanted to work on it. But I was also in the process of doing a big launch at Google and I did not want to... Uh, leave and interfere with that launch. So I stayed there for the launch. And then as soon as uh, it was possible, I was like, let's start a company. <laughs> let's, let's make this a thing. So I jumped ship.
3: That's really cool. How about you, Amanda, the quote unquote MBA of the group?
2: Yeah, this is true. Guilty as charged. Yeah. So Tiago and Adrian actually had asked me three times before I agreed to uh, found Streamlet with them. I was I was the holdout. You know, actually, Adrian and I had worked together at Zooks, And when he left, he was like, I'm going to convince you to start a company with me. And I was like, maybe we'll see. And when he first kind of came to me, I think early on, probably around when he was talking to Tiago, too, I really didn't get the product. It was kind of in its very early stages. And I was like, this is cool, but but probably not for me. And then when when, after Tiago joined, they they kind of sat me down like over lunch and they were like, we we want you to found this with us. And that I got it more than but the big problem was I was six months pregnant at the time. Uh, with my second daughter, and it didn't really feel like the right time to jump on to, you know, a, a startup, you know, that hadn't raised any money, you know, and hadn't figured it out. And so I said, you know, I, it's not the right time. And then ironically, that the right time ended up being while I was on maternity leave. So you could ask what changed between being six was pregnant versus having an infant that seemed like it was a much better time to jump onto a startup. But uh, Adrian is very persuasive. And uh, he got me to do some some moonlighting consulting work for them. Uh, while I was on maternity leave. And it was, it was just so fun. Tiago and Adrian are just such great people. I had so much fun when we worked together at Google X. And then I remember when our project ended at Google X, I just like, Adrian, and I had this walk and I was like, I just want to do it again. It was just so great. And so, you know, having that energy again, especially with having an infant, I was like, this is, this is what I need in my life right now. And I am so glad I joined.
3: So one infant wasn't enough. You decided to take on a second project very early stage project at
1: the same time. Yeah,
2: I already had a toddler too. So basically three. Three was the charm. And he did three crying infants. Or, or let's
1: say she decided to take on two infant co-founders. <laughs> <laughs> well I'll leave that to you guys to decide.
3: Really that that's it sounds like uh it's really cool to see you guys operate together and knowing that you worked together previously and you all knew each other, I can understand why you're moving so quickly. Twitching gears a little bit Adrian, you you know you guys started Streamlit as an open source project. What was behind that decision? Was it obvious from day one or something you deliberated? And when you started building the open source, did you always know, okay, we're going to build a company around this? Or at one point, did it seem like it might just be a project?
0: So uh, you'll be happy to know that this story involves a cabin in the woods as well. <laughs> <laughs> So we had formed the company and there were a, a bunch of people using uh, Streamlit, including at, you know, what really great, sophisticated companies like Stitch Fix and Uber already. And we hadn't um, settled on the license, actually. And there that was... A source of great debate among the founders, and believe it or not, I'm actually in some ways the conservative one of the three founders, and the other two are the crazy ones. And so we had a we had a giant debate at a cabin in the woods. And Amanda, you want to continue the story from here?
2: Sure. Yeah, I will <laughs> just say that the craziness depends, I think, on the decision. So yeah, Adrian that's sometimes before the crazy. That's answer. true. That's
0: true. I can tell you some crazy decisions that they've had to walk me back from. <laughs>
2: The, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, we we knew that we needed this time, you know, just just time away from kind of the day-to-day running of the company to think about it. And so we, we rented this little Airbnb right by Muir Woods and just, you know, stayed there, basically locked ourselves in a room with some avocado sandwiches for two days until we kind of figured it out. And so we took some long walks in the woods and and we came out of it basically deciding that we probably wanted to do open source. We, we weren't entirely sure. and We basically had a one month plan. This, this probably won't surprise you, Glenn, that we had multiple steps that we were going to check and a whole checklist of things that we were going to do over a month to make this decision. And, you know, kind of funnily enough, we came back to the company on Monday and we announced to the, you know, the, the few employees that we had at the time that this was something we were considering. And immediately the engineers were like, it's open source. Like it has to be open source for this, this, and this, this reason. And so, you know, what went from like kind of a month long thing that we were going to decide. It was like basically that and one call with the lawyers and we're like, that's it. We're going to do it. And then, you know, and then the the launch gears just um, started churning from there. And then that's how we got to the uh, open source launch last year.
3: Just curious to go back to that time, like what would have potentially tipped you in the other direction? And, you know, looking back on that decision now, do you think you considered the right set of factors and any
0: regrets? I think that, the debate ultimately comes down to the degree of control essentially you want to have over the you know over the direction of the code and 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 in some sense the relationship that you want to have with the community and on the one hand i think that's one of the really sort of interesting and profound aspects of, of open source which is you're really giving a lot away in a sense but on the other hand there is this opportunity to Engage with people and engage with the community on a sort of honest and open level that I think that they can really respond to. And, you know, the resonance that Amanda described our, our engineers feeling about the open source sort of approach has been amplified a millionfold by the actual community. And it's been really amazing to see people step up and say, this is great. Here's how we want it improved. And here's some code to improve it. And here is uh, here are bug reports, and here are you know very complex roadmaps for what you should do. And and so actually just understanding that it's backed by a company, but but also really embracing it as a community project and, and as ultimately a tentpole of the open source community. And so for data science and machine learning. And so, yeah, I think that. The decision was definitely, definitely the right one. And if anything, we are learning more and more to give to the community and and then get, you know, hopefully build value sort of multiplicatively uh, with them. Awesome. That's great to hear. Uh, Maybe
3: sticking on the community, you know, when you guys launched, you generated a huge amount of excitement amongst the data science community. Amanda, maybe, you know, you could take this one curious if like that was a surprise for you guys, or if you expected that kind of reaction. And you know, things that you did to ensure success, obviously, you want, you only get one chance to make that first impression. How did you guys plan for it? And to what do you attribute all the success you guys had with that early, early reaction?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you, you absolutely hope for it. Um, But, you know, I think that, you know, the especially the how quickly it took off was something that I think was a little bit unexpected, though. We actually, you know, we had planned a lot for this to land well, though, you know, ironically, I think even as founders, you often plan for failure more than you plan for success. And, you know, there were a lot of backroom conversations in the weeks before the launch where we were like, if this goes completely flat, right, you know what do we tell employees? How do we kind of motivate people to go forward? And then right. the flip side happened, right? And our problem was that we didn't have enough employees, right? And we <laughs> had to grow really quickly. But yeah, I think in terms of planning for it, you know, like like Adrian was mentioning, and we spent a year basically in development um, and we were working with a really core group of, you know, basically elite data scientists who were telling us this is good and, and this is how it works for me. But I think, you know, even before that, the product was based off of a real need that the three of us all felt having worked, you know, variously in, in data science and machine learning. But I think it, it's not just that it was a need. It actually tapped into a core emotion, right? That this kind of emotion of, you know, being like a smart person and feeling like you have the answers, but unable to actually make the tools to have the impact that you wanted and put that work out there in a way that, you know, you can convince others, you know, what's going on. And that was a lot of the emotion that I we were able to capture in the blog post, I think very authentically, because we felt it. And I think that's what really resonated. So we knew it resonated for us. We knew it resonated for our core group of beta users. You know, we didn't know necessarily that it was going to register for millions of people though that we hoped it did. And I think that it was that core motion that we were able to get there and then layering on using a great PR firm, right? To get the word out on TechCrunch and then having a social media strategy to kind of amplify all of that, that really relied on, you know, both our beta users getting the word out, uh, you know, as well as posting and things like Hacker News and things like that to, to really find our community. And, you know, I think that, the, the uh, One other thing I would say, and, and this was a little bit by design, but we didn't have a huge amount of the story about Streamlit told before the launch. And one thing about being open source is we tapped into this great community that, that wanted to give back in some ways. And so I think that by not kind of overtelling the story, by not over putting out kind of this is exactly how to use it and what to do, we allowed the community to very quickly fill that void. And it came out in a much more authentic and a much larger way than we could have done ourselves by letting them put out the articles and the apps and things like that, and then helping them from our side to make that even broader for them.
3: Yeah. Very cool. So not only, uh, harnessing the community product wise, but actually harnessing the community to let, let them help you tell the story.
2: Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, it certainly worked out great for you. And then you had the chance to raise some money, <laughs> Tiago, maybe I'll ask you, you know, it sounded like this predates me, so I'm I'm relying on on uh, the uh, mythology of what I've heard, but you started your original focus was angels. How'd that work out?
1: Yeah, so uh, well I guess the theme that you're you're probably hearing so far is like we had a plan. <laughs> we wrote down a plan. We had a always big good to have plans. Yeah, big spreadsheet, bunch of names of angels we were talking to already, some we heard were great and wanted to reach out to. With all sorts of columns on, you know, how much we expected them to be able to contribute, what order we should be able to, we should reach out to them. It's so a the whole tactic there. I also want to make sure there's enough diversity. So we're marking like we should make sure there's diversity at the beginning, and the middle, the end, and so on. Like all these different ways. And what happened was within something like two days, the whole round was oversubscribed, <laughs> and it wow! It, it took a full yeah, two it days. Was, it
0: was one day. It was one day. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, on the no. first day, it was oversubscribed.
1: <laughs> uh, so yeah, we we never fundraised before. I mean, I I never did. I'm pretty sure they didn't either, Agent and Amanda. Let me know if I'm wrong. And uh, so I, I did not anticipate this at all, and it's not the usual story you hear. So we're really uh, excited about this. Um, so we actually huddled back together and, and tried to figure out what do we do now? Uh, so we rethought our whole plan. And, and part of that was let's reach out to people with trust. So angels, founders, VCs, and uh, the ones who we knew the most and see uh, what they told us was a good idea to do at this point. And really the best data points we got, best conversations we got, I think really was founders. Uh, and they basically were saying, look, you already have this round subscribed. What do you have to lose? Go go talk to them, see what happens. And uh, we did that. And we came from a good, I guess, bargaining position. Uh, and that allowed us to just be, just have really honest and good conversations with uh, VCs. In the end, we ended up raising a round with uh, Gradient as the lead with Anna Patterson, who is somebody we knew already from Google and trusted. And that was the thing that really won us over. It's like, we really like her. But, you know, it was quite the experience and we're really happy with the result. That's awesome.
3: We proactively reached out to you guys based on work we were doing screening for fast-growing open source projects. And when we came up on Streamlit, we asked our good friend Elad Gill, who's also been a, a guest on Founder Real Talk in the past, uh, for an introduction because uh, he was an investor in your seed. And you, you also took uh, some angels as part of the, the Series A round, which we co-led with the Gradient folks. Adrian, maybe you could talk about why, like what you've tried to get out of angels, because that's definitely, there's a little bit of a black art to fundraising at the early stages. And it feels like you guys have done a nice blend there. What types of angels have you tried to bring in and how have you tried to extract value from the people that you've, you've decided to bring on your cap table?
0: Yeah, well, Elad, that was basically investor love at first sight. He, he's just just so cool. And he's so humble. And like every question you ask him, he gives you this like amazingly well thought out, like answer, like full of, you know, decades of experience from everyone he's taught. I mean, he literally wrote the book, right? The high growth book. So every time I talk to him, I feel like I'm having, sort of like in a personal podcast with like this amazing guest. And I get anything I ask him, he just gives me the perfect answer to. So we loved Elad, and then um, and then you know the other angels in a sense that we I think that the two things that we were looking for is we wanted to make sure that a group of people who were investing in Streamlit were really well calibrated with respect to you know the kind of software we were building. So we were lucky enough to have uh, the founder, CEO of uh, Docker, uh, sort of an iconic open source company. Recently, we also have the CEO of uh, GitHub and people from New Relic and Confluent and other other places who really understand what we're doing. And that's been just an enormous, like amazing brain trust to have access to. And then the other thing was, uh, uh, Tiago mentioned this, we actually really uh, wanted to have a diverse set of investors in the sense we felt that, being in the lucky position that we could pick our investors, you know, we might as well use that leverage to, you know, for good in a tiny, tiny way. So, really proud that Anna Patterson, for example, as a woman, which is fairly, un, you know, not that common among VCs, is one of our lead investors, both in the seed and in the A. So, I think those were the two things we really wanted—you know, good people, interesting people who knew a lot about what we were doing—and we also, uh, while we were at it, wanted to. Um, contribute if we we could in a small way to that diversity of Silicon Valley.
3: Cool. Yeah. Anna's been amazing to work with. She's incredibly experienced and it's been been fun to learn from her in this process for me. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. uh, You guys have been spending a lot of your time these days building out more open source features. You just launched custom components, which enables third parties to write components that work within Streamlit. And curious, like this, this ecosystem, getting back to the, the theme of the ecosystem, how important is building building this type of ecosystem to your, your open source model and things you're trying to do to, to foster that ecosystem? Maybe, Tiago, let me point that one at you.
1: Sure. Well, the ecosystem is basically the foundation of everything is that we need to make sure that it works. And it's insanely important. And so uh, we've done a few different things. (laughs) And I think probably uh, Adrian and Amanda will have a lot to say here, but let me just throw a couple of examples of things that we've done to try to foster that ecosystem. So at the very beginning, when the launch was going much better than we anticipated, we suddenly had to grow a forum out of thin air. And what we did was we had our engineers doing a rotation there and actually all the founders involved and all the other uh, company employees working there too. So we're all... In Slack, <laughs> answering questions uh, amongst ourselves and crafting them to say exactly the perfect things at the right tone, go the extra mile, give code examples, and then we have some of you go and post that in the forum. And that is actually part of building the ecosystem—is giving people what is the right tone that we want the community to have, and what we want uh, people to be able to do and help each other like in the community. And so. This helped early users become power users, and then those power users took off and started a virtual cycle. Something else we did more recently is uh, launched the ability to build components in Streamlit. And the idea is, you know, if you're a developer and you hit a roadblock while using Streamlit, how do we turn that into a positive virtuous experience? And with components, uh, that lets you turn your that wall that you hit into a solution. You build a component to solve your problem. And you add a new feature in the way to streamlit that way. And then you share with the community and you unblock yourself, you unblock everybody else too. And hopefully you gain some social capital too. So we try to promote the best components. And uh, hopefully this also nudges other people to build their own components. So again, starting that vicious uh, that virtuous uh, cycle. So that's something we're always trying to do is set the initial conditions. And then see if the community is able to grow in the direction that members are able to amplify each other.
3: I like the. The fact that in the early days, you're really spoon feeding on the forum and really being conscious of tone and trying to go that extra mile. That's what I I hear that similar sentiment from other founders of open source companies. You know, we've had both Armand, Dadgard, Mitchell Hashimoto on the show in the past, the co-founders of HashiCorp. and They talk about the early days and how important it is to kind of like create the culture of the community, even if it's small that those things reverberate for many years. So hopefully you guys will see the same thing. Adrian, any, any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I, I basically just want to totally agree. Uh, you know, we stream, I, I think Streamlit has a persona, uh, which is in perhaps a little bit, a meld of the three personalities on the call right now, uh, which is, it turns out Tiago is a terrific writer, for example, and he really writes tutorials and stuff that just make you feel like, okay, awesome. What's coming next? You know, it's just fun. And, uh, and then I, you know, bring, I think it's sort of a little bit of like a starry eyed wonder and an excitement about building new things. And, and that's part of the stream of persona as well. And then, you know, Amanda is just like a very like wonderful, warm person. And that's part of the persona as well. You know, we're very, we're, we're kind to one another and we're excited about building things. And so uh, just leading by example, bit by bit, block by block mm. and, and creating, you know, in a sense, putting up a flag and saying, this is just, this is who we are. This is what we care about. We think this is cool. Who wants to join us? And then just watching in a sense, like almost like magnetically, the, the people our tribe as it were coming together and saying, Oh, this is really cool. And, and that's super energizing because it really goes both ways too. They're being kind and they're being creative and they're challenging us and they're doing new things. And and so We come into work, I mean, literally every day. We have Slack channels, you know, hooked up to the forums and to the Twitter and various things. And it's just, how do you do this? How do you do that? Look at this cool thing I made. What do you you know? What do you think about that? And it's just what an environment to work in. I mean, to be surrounded all over the world, literally all over the world, in different languages and stuff by people using with and partaking with and enriching your life and one another's life—it's really cool. So yeah, that's been a wonderful—that's been a wonderful cycle to start, and and in fact, it's also really shaped in a profound way and sort of taught us what features to release. And the goal is, Chavo mentioned this: release features that enrich the community that have a multiplicative effect on the community. So. Uh, yes, listen to wh- what everyone wants and build that. But as Tiago mentioned, help them build features for Streamlit. Let them enrich one another. Um, let them answer one another's questions. And let's see the, another a feature that we're that we're just releasing on October fifteenth is the ability to share your Streamlit apps for free mm. uh, straight off of GitHub. It's something that we already see happening with a great difficulty, actually. People are just self-hosting their apps and putting them out there in the world. And we're really excited to basically give data scientists the ability to take their ideas, create a beautiful interactive version of it for their companies or for the world, and then in a single click deploy that. So that's the ultimate expression, I think, of this sort of sharing principle, and we're really excited to get it out there.
3: Oh, that's really exciting. Uh, so speaking of tribe, <laughs> your tribe, obviously you guys are putting a lot into this. So tracking uh, the growth in your community, the engagement of your community has got to be very important. Curious, maybe Amanda to ask you, I know this is a focus of yours. What are you tracking? What do you think matters the most? And um, how are you trying to make sure you gear you, you know gear the company for success and with respect to the community?
2: Oh, okay. Glenn, how much time do you have? I, uh... <laughs> I actually, I really could talk about metrics for hours. Um, and, and maybe that's fortunate, being a company that uh, that serves data scientists. That we we dog food our own product. Uh, we actually do pipe kind of all our telemetry and various metrics into Streamlit, and it's it's one of the principles of the company that it's open to anybody in the company to go around and and build your own dashboards and play with it. But uh, yeah, to your to your top level, you know, a lot of what we're looking at is you know kind of your your traditional funnel in terms of like. How many people have heard, you know, tried it? That's your your, your web analytics, your downloads. Uh, how many people are sticking with it, and then how many people are out there kind of evangelizing, right, and, and sharing it, right? Really, kind of building that core community. And so it's the last two that are really the most important to us right now, because you know we're we're still in many ways in the early days of the product, and so it's a lot about you know can we grow, you know, what we call super users, right? So people who really are taking this product and, and embedding it into their workflow right, and finding, you know, new and important ways to do that. And then, you know, some subset of them coming on our forum or on Twitter, right, teaching us how they're using it, right, spreading the words and doing things like that. So it was a very kind of intentional choice that we had to make specifically on usage telemetry. It's, um, you know, a lot of open source products don't have that. And we, you know, we're we're very intentional in doing this in a very light way. But it was also important for us to have some indication, right, that the people were using, and how they were using it. And so then we do a lot of kind of calculations on that to then figure out, you know, cohort people and and look at them by different sections and you know how often they're using it. And that's what really, you know, helps us know, all right, are we trending in the right direction, right? Because, you know, certain things like you you get a great article somewhere and that could bring in thousands of people you know, 10,000 were downloads, but those could all be, you know, basically the wrong type of people, right? People who are just curious, they're going to use it once. What's more important, right, is that we keep continually growing. And, and most of our growth is through word of mouth, and is through our community, people who kind of have this real need, and they find and they know other people that have this real need. So yeah, so so tracking that kind of, you know, usage and making sure that that's growing. And then on kind of the, the community, which is mostly for us on Twitter and discourse, right, tracking that in terms of, you know, can, can, What are the number of kind of named users that we can point to that have kind of contributed something to Streamlit, right, over the past 30 days uh, in terms of, you know, sharing an app, right, or helping a user, you know, solve an issue on the forum, right? Are we kind of really making that engaged community? And we actually just started a new program actually on that, uh, that we're calling Streamlit Creators, which is a way for us actually, in many ways, to give back more to the people who are doing a lot for the community, give them kind of more accesses and more resources, but also for us to learn. Uh, even more directly from, from a group of people that are really, you know, both super users and kind of super evangelists for Streamlit, and yeah, we're just starting that, but we're really excited about that. as kind of a new, a new wave of insight and a new way of growth for Streamlit as well.
3: Very cool. I love the idea of creating like a, a creator tier and, and delivering them even more value and kind of encouraging the, the virtuous cycle to continue. That's awesome. You know, one thing I've been tremendously impressed by you guys so far is hiring. It's a real challenge in the current market. And certainly, you know, as we sit here today, we're, we're looking at each other through the video monitor and still in a pandemic. Uh, hopefully these days will at some point end and we'll be able to convene in person again. But I'm curious, like how you've been able to continue to hire great people and foster such, strong, such a strong culture internally. Tiago, maybe I'll ask you, you know, What's the secret to closing those, you know, getting, getting great people involved and bringing them on board? Obviously, you're, you're competing with bigger companies frequently for the talent that you're getting. Curious what kind of tricks of the trade you can share that have worked well for you guys.
1: Yeah. So, well, first of all, I think it's the thing you said earlier, uh, to acknowledge that we're in a pandemic. And this is uh, really a horrible time for a lot of people. And we're really, really fortunate to be in a position where we, we still have jobs and we are able to hire. So I think that's really important to bring up. But so yeah, how do we hire such good quality people? I think if we're you're, if you're competing with big companies, the way we're competing is on what we're putting out there and what Streamlit is and what the goal is, the vision. Uh, that's where you can compete. Of course, you know, providing competitive packages as well. But the important thing really is that. So, for example, being open source is a big driver mm. for us. Uh, we have people who are amazing engineers reaching out to us saying, I want to work on that. Uh, I've been using it. It's amazing. I want to do it. Or the other way around, people will reach out to and they say, you know, I wasn't looking for anything, but this is an open source project. I'm really, really excited about open source. And the other thing is. We just tend to be very open with candidates when we interview and do phone screens. Uh, Just tell them our plans and uh, tell them if they ask the right questions. They ask like, oh, uh, you know, what are the biggest challenges you see? We tell them what are the challenges and basically just have an honest conversation with them and uh, treat people like human beings and have, you know, you don't you don't have a big company interview process. And well, then the other thing is uh, just have an extremely tight funnel. So we don't have the resources to talk to everybody we see coming into the pipeline. And then we don't have the resources to interview everybody that goes to the first phone screen. So we really have to make sure it's incredibly tight, which means we will hire we hire more slowly than a lot of companies. But in the end, it pays off in the quality and uh, in the long run, improves the execution speed as well and execution quality. So uh, it also has a side effect of uh, helping us grow the culture of the team in a careful way hmm. so we don't get an influx of 50% more people on the team and everything changes. So that's been really helpful as well.
3: Got it. Okay. I want to ask one more question before we get to the speed round, Adrian, maybe I'll, I'll uh, direct it at you. You know, one of the challenges that a lot of the open source companies we work we work with or we've met over the years uh, have is sort of bridging that gap between all the stuff we've talked about so far, building a community you know releasing features and and encouraging the community to help with road mapping and debugging and and uh, feature development that are compelling uh, all that and then bridging gap to a commercial business uh, viable commercial strategy you guys haven't yet launched any commercial products uh, but i know you're thinking a lot about it curious like what gives you the confidence that you'll think you'll be able to bridge that gap and what do you think are like the factors that are most germane to founding teams as they think about taking this journey.
0: Yeah, we part of the reason as you brought up Glenn that we have been confident in sort of pursuing a community strategy is because we have noticed How much activity, commercial activity, there is around Streamlit already? In fact, there is a—it's you know less visible than the open source stuff, but Streamlit has really sort of taken hold at at a ton of companies, including Fortune 500 companies. You know, we're now part of the official data science workbench at Uber. Just uh, you know, in fact, there's a ton of machine learning happening at companies you wouldn't expect—7-Eleven, Delta Dental—and uh, and they are also have fantastic engineers working for them and are enthusiastically using Streamlit. Um, and in some cases, investing like hundreds of thousands of dollars in engineering time to support Streamlit within the company. So we have been keeping an eye on that the whole time, and we. We we see you know very much what's going on, what they're doing, and also how we think we can build products that are going to make Streamlit just a ten star experience inside uh, your company. So take it from a the data scientists love it and they're using it, but it's a little bit janky to share with others. To a platform that in a single clip can be adopted by the company and then allows. The data science group, the machine learning group to build tools that are used by the entire company so that you can make data driven decisions, model based decisions in lockstep with product managers, engineers, data scientists and so on. So we are uh, we feel that there is a very, very natural evolution to building um, a paid product, which is really just a continuation of what people are already using Streamlit for, and in some cases, which they're asking us to pay for. So knowing that has given us, uh, given us the confidence to say, this is potentially a very foundational project in the sort of data science machine learning stack. We're going to keep working with companies on the one hand, and we're also going to really invest in making sure that, that people, the whole community is excited about it. And
3: Very cool. Very cool. Well, it's exciting times. And speaking of exciting times, it's time for the speed round. You guys should all feel really hot on your seat right now. Uh, I'm going to ask mm-hmm. each each of you a question. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Adrian, we'll start with you. One piece of advice uh, you wish someone had given you when you started Streamlit, knowing what you know now. The funny thing
0: is, all the advice we got was awesome, but I totally ignored it. <laughs> so, I think one thing that, that people said is they were like, Adrian, you got to know your co-founders. You've got to trust them. You know They've, they've got to be rock solid. And of course, that's what happened. But oh boy, do I now realize that's true. <laughs> and when people start companies now and they're coming up to me and they're like, what do I do? I'm like, know your co-founders. It's, I, I know that they're not listening to me just as I didn't listen to others, but it is such good advice.
3: Elad Gil is fond of saying co-founders have three jobs, raise money, set strategic direction and don't fight with your co-founders. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly, that's a sage, sage words. Amanda, <laughs> you know, particularly during the pandemic, what's a helpful tool you guys have used at Streamlit to ensure that the team is staying engaged and sync. And even though everyone's dispersed, working well together
2: it's the trifecta of uh, kind of, I think, Notion, Slack, and Hangouts Meet. So, you know, Notion is really kind of our, our knowledge base for the company, just so it really enables that asynchronous work, making sure that everybody kind of knows, you know, they can find information um, there. And then Slack is our main way of kind of keeping in contact. And we've added a lot of like cultural channels and things like that. And then, you know, just, you know, we, we don't want to have too much Zoom fatigue, but, you know, now and then you really just need to have kind of a face-to-face. And I think some people need that more than others. So we're judicious, you know, hopefully in using that, but, uh, uh you know, those three things I think together, uh, have been really helpful.
3: Yeah. You guys are uh, power users of all the above. Tiago, you were born in Brazil. You studied on the East coast of the U.S. You also studied in Europe. You've lived and worked on the West coast in the U.S. now for a while. What's one thing you think being such a, like a global citizen has helped you with as, as a founder?
1: So this is probably a platitude, but uh, basically every place I lived in, I have a deep love for, but I also see deep problems with. And I think being a founder is very similar, is that you need to be able to see all the deep problems in your company and also see, uh, don't forget the, uh, the big dream, the big vision, and be able to see beyond that and build toward that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's something that in, in every city I lived in, you have to do as well.
3: Mm. Well, speaking of big dreams and big visions, you guys have uh, certainly conveyed that Streamlit has, has big dreams and big visions. And I can say that uh, at GGV, we're incredibly excited to be with you on this journey. Uh, it's been super fun so far, and I, I just can't wait to see what the future holds. Uh, But thanks so much for joining us today on Founder Real Talk. Uh, It's been a great episode, and I know that other early-stage founders listening in are going to learn a lot from you guys, and we'll be cheering you on (laughs) from the community and the sidelines. So thanks a lot, and uh, best of luck to you.
2: Thanks for having us.
3: Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. Yeah, super fun. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, HelloBike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat.